Well, of those of you who read fiction, how many of you read the last chapter or the last page or the ending first? Some of you, good. Thank you, Aaron. I know some of you are appalled that I even asked the question, but there are, or excuse me, there is one um, who does that. I've never done it, um, but I understand those who do, or I understand Aaron, right? Um, For some, reading the ending creates more interest in the story, knowing the end. It it piques the curiosity by creating intrigue regarding what took place to cause the story to end as it did. Um, For others... Knowing the ending reduces the stress, right? it, it, it eliminates the anxiety that comes with uncertainty that, that sometimes causes people to read really quickly uh, to get to the next part. And then still for others, knowing the ending allows them to concentrate on the details. It's like reading with hindsight. It lends, um, it lends itself to looking for and seeing particular things in relationships or circumstances or hearing things in monologues and, and dialogues that might otherwise have gone overlooked. And as I said, I've never done it in reading, but, and I know this isn't a, a book, but it's still applicable I thought watching The Sixth Sense was better the second time through, knowing the ending, because I was then able to watch and and listen for clues and signs that pointed to the ending that I didn't look for the first time. Now, with all that said, let me share the ending of Joseph's story. Listen from chapter 50, beginning in verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and to all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, say to Joseph... Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of, our, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I am, in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Why did he return to Egypt? Why was he even in Egypt in the first place? Why did his brothers need to be forgiven? And what were, what were his brothers so afraid of 
Why were they afraid that Joseph would carry out some sort of retribution? Why would he weep? Why would his brothers bow down as servants of his? What did God mean for good? And how exactly did he bring about that good that he wanted to do? You see, Aaron's right. Knowing the end doesn't spoil the end of the story. It actually lays the groundwork for more thoughtful and careful and expectant reading. And it will for the next 14 chapters of Genesis, beginning with chapter 37 tonight. On the surface, our chapter tonight is a, uh, extreme, or a story of extreme sibling rivalry. And of course, the main characters are Joseph and his brothers. Below the surface, however, it's a story of God's providence. And it's the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that God had shared to Abram in Genesis 15. Remember, he said this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So below the surface, God's the main character, even though he's not mentioned in chapter 37 at all. There are practical and moral points to be made along the way, but we're going to settle in on the theological and Christological points. That's where we're going to land. And our outline, which is in its usual place, is very, very simple tonight. We're going to look at the story, and then we're going to look at the takeaways from the story. So let's pray before we continue. Father, I ask for your spirit to make the reading and the preaching of your word an effectual means of enlightening and convincing and humbling us, of driving us out of ourselves and drawing us to Christ, of conforming us to the image of Christ and subduing us to his will, of strengthening us against temptations and corruptions, of building us up in grace and establishing our hearts in holiness and comfort through faith and to salvation. I ask, as always, that you would fill me with your spirit, you would grant me grace and attend to me as I do this work you've called me to do, and I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, Joseph 17, and he is, or Moses tells us, he is out in the pasture with Dan and Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher, and they're attending their father's flocks. And while we don't know exactly what happened, Moses tells us that Joseph brought a bad report of them, or about them, to his father. And the language suggests that the report was untrue. So one of two things is going on. One, consensus is that Joseph, at best, had tattled on his brothers and exaggerated whatever it was they had done, or worse, he lied and misrepresented them. But either way, his goal was to paint them in a bad light for some reason, and by doing so, he fueled the flames of this sibling rivalry. You see, in verse 3, he tells us that 
Israel had apparently forgotten, Israel or Jacob had forgotten his own experience growing up and the problem that was created by his father and his mother in their parental favoritism. Right? He forgot what, what had, it had created between him and his brother Esau. And rather than learn from the mistakes of his parents, he decided to do the same thing his parents had done. And, he, and Moses said he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And this wasn't a secret because Israel had gone so far as, as to visually portray this favoritism. And he gave Joseph this lengthy, long-sleeved robe. The New American Standard calls it a tunic. The King James calls it a coat. But all three versions of the ESV, New American Standard, and King James all refer to it as being multicolored. And it's safe to say that it, it wasn't typical attire, and it definitely wasn't something that all of the brothers had or wore. It was simply Joseph. It was intended to mark him as the favored son. It was intended to identify him as his father's representative. He was the one, Joseph was, was the one that had been given the familial responsibility in other words, it was, it was somewhat regal, princely, but it marked Joseph as possessing authority and responsibility. It marked Joseph as being in charge. And so it's not an understatement. It couldn't be more clear in verse 4 where we read his brothers hated him for it and they could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't wish him well. They had nothing good to say about him. They, it, it's not too much to say they detested him. He was an enemy of theirs. And these feelings were only reinforced by the two dreams that he had and the fact that he told his brothers about the dreams. The first dream is found in verse 7. Joseph said, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And the brothers knew immediately what he was saying. There was no question what he was saying, but they wanted him to own it. So in verse 8, they ask him, Are you saying you're going to reign and rule over us? And of course, that's exactly what he was saying, because that's exactly what the dream meant. But then he tells them another dream. The second dream is in verse 9. Joseph said, Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And the meaning is, is obvious. It means the same thing as the first dream, even though it uses heavenly objects rather than earthly objects. The pair of dreams communicated and validated that he had been chosen and had received the favor of his father, but also they communicated and validated that he had been chosen by and received favor from the Lord. And as a result, verses 5 and 8 say they hated him even more. Verse 11 says they were jealous. Now, it's important to point out before we move to the second part of the pericope that Joseph wasn't blameless. 
Some of you may have grown up hearing that. But Joseph wasn't blameless in this. He played a part in this animosity that's going on. Richard Phillips suggests, while many commentators excuse Joseph's boasting as youthful exuberance and naivete, it is hard to believe that a 17-year-old had no idea how the dreams would come across to his brothers. And I think he's right. Joseph, he goes on to say, comes across as a favored, spoiled, and unpopular youth. And I think that opinion is corroborated in verse 10 where his father rebukes him. But in verse 11, it also says his father kept the saying in his mind. And he kept the saying in his mind because he, while he believed that Joseph was probably being a brat, Joseph was trustworthy. He believed him. He believed he was different than his brothers, so he wasn't going to dismiss the telling of the dreams. He wasn't going to dismiss the dreams as youthful taunting or boasting. He was going to keep the dreams in the forefront of his mind and ponder whether or not that these dreams could actually be confirmation of what God intended to do with his son. But he would be the only one that would do that. In the words of Derek Kidner, the father's open mind was the product of some humility. Israel had learned by now, as his sons had not, to allow for God's hand in affairs and for his right of choice among men. But unlike their father, the, the sons, we're setting Benjamin aside, he's not a part of this, but all of the, the brothers that were older than Joseph probably believed themselves to be better qualified and more apt and more able to lead than Joseph was. But they weren't, they weren't going to humble themselves. They weren't going to humble themselves. They, were, they would only reject the one who God had sovereignly chosen to fulfill His purposes. They were going to allow the hatred and the jealousy to run amok and give birth to active hostility and rejection. And that, of course, was going to lead to life-altering decisions that were going to affect everybody involved. Now, brothers and sisters, I think it's important to pause and, and to ask. We need to ask ourselves, are we ourselves dealing with any type or level of hatred toward another or any envy of another? And if so, we should do the best that we can to identify the root cause. And the root cause is is typically pride as well as a discontentment and displeasure with God. May we all remember that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the, to the humble. And so may we all humble ourselves and repent of, repent of our pride Repent of any hatred, repent of any envy, and seek forgiveness from the Lord and from those that we've sinned against.
And by the grace of God and His Spirit, may we seek to love one another and our neighbor as ourselves. Well, Moses tells us that at some point the brothers had gone to Shechem and they had left Joseph behind, and we understand why. It makes sense. And, um, but in verses 13 and 14, we read that Israel decides to send send Joseph to go check on them, which also makes sense. But he goes and he, he sends them uh, or asks him to go to find them, to find the flocks, to see how they're doing. And of course, Joseph um, honors his father's request and he obeys. And there are a couple things that we have to, we, we wonder about. We wonder, was Israel unaware of the tension between the brothers or was he just believing and remaining confident that Joseph would would be okay. And was Joseph himself, was he either, he he was either too naive to know how his brothers felt, or was he overly confident that this would remain relational and not physical? But it's, it's interesting that he's going to send his son to Shechem, which is 50 miles away, and there'd be no one to referee And at some point as he's journeying to Shechem, he gets lost, or at least the language suggests that he does. It says that he was wandering around like he was lost. And while he's wandering, a man sees him. The man approaches him and asks, what are you looking for? He said, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen them? They were supposed to be here with my father's flocks. He said, well, no, they're not here now, but they were. They've gone to Dothan. And that was 15 miles down the road, so Joseph continues on. And it's in Dothan that the story takes a really bad turn, because it's in Dothan that while he's still off, while Joseph's still off at a distance, his cloak and robe, coat, probably giving him away, the brothers see him coming. And when they see him, they immediately begin to conspire against him. Verse 18 says, conspire against him to kill him. In other words, their unbridled anger, their unbridled envy had become motivation for a murderous plot. And their wicked plans and actions weren't random. They were coming from the wickedness of their hearts. And we know that because of what Jesus tells us. He said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And we can hear the antagonism in their voice. Here comes the dreamer. We'll see what comes of his dreams. Their first plan was to kill him and to throw him into a cistern. They were going to tell their father that he had been killed by a wild animal. But fortunately, uh, Reuben steps in with an alternative plan. Reuben's plan is to just simply throw him into the cistern and leave him there. And Moses tells us kind of what's behind the scenes and what's going on in Reuben's mind to, to some extent. He tells him that there's this secret goal he has of going back and, and retrieving Joseph saving him, but we don't really know why. We're not told why. We don't know if his conscience was pricked in some way 
or if he's going to try to get back into the good graces of his father, particularly because of what he had done, Reuben had done with Bilhah. Regardless, the brothers choose the plan. Sounds good, we'll do that. So verse 23 says, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit, and then they sat down to eat. This is a violent assault. 20 years later, the brothers are going to describe the depth of their depravity when they would actually admit that they heard Joseph crying out for help as they ate. Actually, they will say they ignored the distress of his soul as he begged them for his life. In the words of one author, neither his youth nor his being their brother nor his being the comfort of their father's old age could stem their passion. And at some point, while they're eating, Reuben gets up to leave. We don't know where he goes. We're not even told that he leaves. We're only told that he returns. And while he's gone, a caravan of Ishmaelites and Midianites come along. They're on this, Dothan's on this major trade route to Egypt. Um, and by the way, Midianites and Ishmaelites are interchangeable um, descriptions. Ishmaelites is broader, Midianites is more specific. So we shouldn't get all bent out of shape about that. But anyway, the brothers see the caravan approaching. And Judah has an idea. Judah's idea is to not only get rid of Joseph, but to make a little money in the process. And he presents it as this noble option. We won't kill him. We'll just give him away. In verse 27 says the brothers listened. And in verse 28 it says they pulled him up out of the pit, sold him for 20 shekels, and the Ishmaelites took him to Egypt. When Reuben gets back and sees it, or saw that Joseph was gone, he was beside himself. And it seems as though he was a little more concerned about himself than Joseph. He realizes that he's, um, his plan to rectify the situation with his father has gone awry, so it's not going to happen. And, and at that point, the brothers decide to go back to part of the original plan. They're going to put blood, goat's blood, on the robe, and they send the robe back. They send it ahead of them. And Israel receives the robe, and, and he immediately says that Joseph's been killed. He, he, he assumes that Joseph's been killed by this wild animal, just as the brothers had hoped. Plan is working. And at that moment, things came full circle for Israel, for Jacob. Because he who had deceived his father with the pelt of a goat and with the clothes of his brother was now being deceived by the blood of a goat and the clothes of his son. Well, those here tonight who have ever lost a child know the depth of Israel's despair. He cannot be consoled. He cannot be consoled. He cannot be comforted. He actually refuses to be comforted. 
And again, the depravity, the wickedness of the hearts of these older brothers is put on display because they can stop the mourning simply by telling the truth, and they refuse to do so. Their comfort is empty. And as always the case, right, with sin, one sin led to another, this, this spiral downward. Their, their sin of hatred and jealousy led to physical violence and treachery, and the physical violence and treachery led to deceit. And the deceit led them into their, their own pit, which they could not and would not climb out of for 20 years. Beloved, throughout my ministry, I've had opportunity after opportunity, too many to count, and, and that's not something that, that I'm glad for, but I've had countless opportunities to encourage people to take responsibility for their sin and to repent of their sin rather than hide behind false innocence and deceit. And I hate to say that few have ever taken me up on it. And I understand the difficulty, but it's always best in the long run. It's always best because the longer people wait, the further into the pit they go. So let me encourage you, if you are in the midst in the midst of unrepentant sin, if you're hanging on to some unrepentant sin, don't wait. Stop hiding. Confess your sin. Stop your deceit. Confess your sin completely and repent immediately. It is in your best interest. So what do we take away from the story? That's the story. What are, what, are our, what are our takeaways? And there are three things I want us to consider tonight. And the first is this. This chapter and really this whole story that we're going to see unfold between now and uh, the end of December. It tells us that God is always at work and His will will prevail. Listen to these words from paragraph 1 of chapter 5 of our confession. The chapter is entitled, Of Providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. By His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Beloved, it's good for all of us to consider that God doesn't merely react or respond to our circumstances. God doesn't merely show up and pick up the pieces or mend what's broken only after things break. He doesn't merely wait until we make our decisions to move in and overcome or trump our mistakes. 
He is proactively involved in all our circumstances. He is proactively involved in all our circumstances. He means and intends to work for His glory and for our good in the details of our lives. In the words of Paul, He is working all things according to the counsel of His will and for the good of those called according to His purpose. In the words of Richard Phillips, it was not bad luck that brought Joseph down, but the surprising plan of a wise and benevolent God. How grateful believers should be that even the worst conceivable events are governed by the hidden hand of a faithful God. How terrifying it would be if dark and menacing powers truly had a free hand in our lives. But God is in charge. His hand may not be seen, but His word will not fail. Joseph's brothers thought they were preventing the dreams from becoming a reality when actually the Lord was using them to set things in motion to fulfill those dreams. That's how God works. That's how God worked then. That's how He works now. That's how He works in your life and in mine. At times, it feels like sickness and disease have the upper hand. At times, it seems like evil people are prospering. and, and Well, they are prospering, and it just seems like they're, they're going to continue to prosper, and nothing's ever going to change. It feels like and seems like godless ideologies are succeeding. But God's at work. God is at work in all of those things, and His plan will prevail. Everything is within His purview. Nothing is above His pay grade. No one and nothing are going to thwart the will of God. They're not going to thwart His work. His plans will not be derailed. And we need to file that away. And that leads to the second takeaway. Wherever we are and Whatever we may be experiencing right now, it's not the last chapter of the story. Verse 36 tells us that Joseph's story isn't over. Notice it says, Moses, meanwhile, right? In the meantime, um, there's more to come to this story. The father doesn't, Jacob doesn't know, or Israel doesn't know that Joseph's alive, but he is. And it's a cliffhanger of a chapter. The ending ending leaves us in this wander because it appears as though the dreams are not going to be fulfilled. So what happens next? How will God work? How will He continue to bring about the good He intends? We'll have to wait and see. Many of you right now are in the midst of your own pit. You're dealing with issues. You're dealing with health and physical issues. Some of you are waiting to see doctors and and get test results. Some of you are 
experiencing emotional issues, you're experiencing psychological issues, you're, you're dealing with fam, familial, family issues, relational issues, issues with parents, issues with children, you're dealing with spiritual issues, you're dealing with marital issues, we're all dealing with some kind of issues. And we have no idea, we have no idea how this chapter is going to end. We don't know what the next chapter holds. But the one thing we do know is that this isn't the end of the story. How will God continue to bring about the good He intends in the midst of the issues that we have? We'll have to wait and see. But like Thomas Chisholm, who wrote, Great is Thy Faithfulness, we all have strength for, the, for today and hope for tomorrow. And that's our third takeaway. We have hope because no matter what we're experiencing, and while we may not know what happens at the end of this current chapter, we've read the end of the story. We've actually read the next to the last chapter and the last chapter. We heard some of the next to the last chapter during our assurance of pardon that I'm going to read again. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then the last chapter includes this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need, they will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved, we have hope for today, or strength for today, and hope for tomorrow because we are not looking to Joseph. We're looking to someone greater than Joseph. We're looking to the one who points to Joseph. We're looking to Jesus. We're looking to Jesus, who, like Joseph, was beloved by his father. We're looking to Jesus who, like Joseph, was hated and rejected by his brothers. He was betrayed for money. He was delivered into the hands of evil men. He descended into the pit of death, but he was raised on the third day and exalted to the right hand of the Father, and it is through him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's the greater Joseph. And I'll close with these words from Reverend Phillips. He said, when God sent Joseph as a slave into Egypt, he was thinking of Israel and its need for a provider. But when God sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, into this sin-scarred world, 
where he was rejected, suffered, and died, he was thinking of us. He was thinking of us and our need for a Redeemer. Thanks be to God for His providence. Thanks be to God for our hope. And thanks be to God for our Redeemer, Savior, Lord, and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together. And I, I pray, Father, that you would implant the word deep within our hearts and it would bring forth fruit of righteousness. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.